0: We both sort of had, each had had this idea of of what a farm in the city could be that was different than anything that we had seen previously. Most of the farms were either like agricultural focused or education focused, and they weren't really about community... And not to say that there wasn't a community there. All of those farms have community, had very strong community cultures, but it wasn't about uh, open public embracing of, of people and of the farm as a fixture, as part of the social fabric of a community.
1: Serendipity brought Ryan Watson and Henry Sweets together, unified by their vision of the power of urban farming to improve the health of local communities. They spent seven years nurturing and building North Brooklyn Farm on the banks of the East River in Brooklyn, nestled under the Williamsburg Bridge. This extraordinary oasis, a gathering place for the local community in the midst of the New York metropolis, recently closed to make space for real estate development. However, in this two-part episode, we discover that Ryan's vision remains clear on the role and need for urban farming. In part one, we discuss Ryan's upbringing, his education and what influenced him to walk away from a career in corporate law to pursue his love of agriculture and farming, and the genesis of North Brooklyn Farms. In part two, Ryan and I discuss his experience and learnings from running an urban farm and community gathering space for seven years, and the impact the farm had on the local residents and community in Williamsburg and beyond. We discuss his current rural farming adventure at Wild Russet Farms in the Catskills of New York State. And how a new generation of millennial farmers could create a more sustainable future beyond industrial agriculture in this honest and wide-ranging discussion we also cover his views on education technology curiosity risk taking failure persistence work ethic values and farming in the future i hope you enjoy the contemplative perspectives social impact and community-minded spirit of ryan watson so let's jump in ryan Welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Welcoming us to your wonderful farm, Wild Russet Farm, here in the Catskills. Yeah, our pleasure. That's what we're here for. (laughs) It's great. And we uh, obviously we're going to jump into your, your journey into the world of agriculture and farming. But before we do, we always like to start asking our guests to really explore their lives as they grew up and talking about their childhood. So maybe you could start by telling us about... Your upbringing, I believe, that you were born in Southern California.
0: Uh, yeah, I guess living in New York, but always Californian at heart a little bit. So I, I grew up in, in Los Angeles, just outside of Venice Beach, Mar Vista. Nice. I was an only child growing up, played a lot of baseball. Uh, surfer? Well, yeah, surfer. You've gotta be a surfer in uh, Venice Beach. Yeah, my both my parents were from the East Coast and had made their way out to California. To do what? I think to... Something different, energetically for a shift, which is kind of funny to so what were have they, returned. what were they doing in the East Coast? Well, my mother was going to school and my father had sort of, I believe he had a bad breakup and mm. California was sort of something new. And I think in this way that my parents moved from one side of the country to the other, that for me was... I, I always had my eyes on on moving to the East Coast, New York for school was sort of what was in the plan. It was a it was a concept. It was a stopping point. I didn't think that we'd end up with a farm in in the mountains, but Okay. So tell me about um,
1: Los Angeles. When you, your parents moved over there, was that were you born at that point or were you born in Southern California? Yeah,
0: I was born in Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. So grew up around the ocean. My father had spent time uh, a lot of time sailing and scuba diving and yeah so every guest we speak to there's always a clear
1: story in terms of their parental support and the importance of a guidance could you reflect on that and talk about who was more influential in your upbringing or if they were both influential what roles did they play
0: yeah i think it would sort of be hard to to rank one over the other <laughs> yes yeah, um, they hear it go, oh yeah. yeah i think just learn different styles and different things from different sides i most most definitely from my father's side the value of hard work um, was and the actual doing was something that was instilled in me through sports particularly through mm. baseball so your father in
1: relation to sports instilled in you uh, a work ethic through okay. the baseball.
0: Yeah, I would say a lot of lessons through mm-hmm. sports when I look back now on, on growing up, particularly yeah, work ethic, sort of leadership skills. Something that I now think back on that's interesting is this kind of a concept of being in the zone, mm-hmm. which I sort of have a different eye on now as I've gotten a little bit older and started to l- kind of be able to listen to insights that happen in that state. I think th- both with the two of them, grew up in very different so my my mother in a in a Jewish household and my father in a Catholic household one of Irish Catholic one of 10 they had different experiences and so i got imagine. a diverse range of viewpoints to 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 base sort of my understanding of your, the world
1: view, yeah definitely uh, what about siblings
0: uh i'm an only child uh, so i had a lot of I, I think in that way it allowed for an adoption of siblings Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of family members cousins and friends that basically played the similar role to older brother younger brother younger sister even Um, out
1: in LA
0: yeah most definitely when I look back through my years there's always somebody who was part of a larger extended family that Mm -hmm. if so I grew up also sort of as the youngest son uh, in a Cuban family who lived a few blocks from us it was always part of my identity growing up because they it's it's had a nursery. My parents divorced when I was young, and my mom had, was a, a young doctor. My father was working, and so they needed a place for me to go. And they had it. There was a nursery ad just a few blocks away from where I was raised in Los Angeles, and it turned out that they embraced you. Yeah, it. I so that sort must of, have been quite an
1: interesting sort of fusion of cultures, coming from a sort of a Irish Catholic Jewish background, and then mixed in with a bit of cuban
0: cuban and and mexican as well Um, did you learn to speak spanish at an early age so i was when i was young spanish was a second language for me but i was quite obstinate in that i wouldn't i would only speak in english but i could understand and would i it was something i i regretted when i look back Uh, on it as i started didn't need to be able to speak spanish more but um it was always part of my my identity growing up and and when i look back people ask about this sort of progression to being a farmer growing up in los angeles a lot of the people that raised me and were part of that experience made agricultural lessons part of the dynamic in which i grew up Uh, The my cuban grandfather he sold birds in the back of the house Mm -hmm. and had pineapple plants and mangoes and when I think back in it, actually the first apple I ever picked off of a tree that I have memory of was in that backyard. It was a Granny Smith apple. So uh, at
1: that age, these subliminal cues were being embedded or seeds were being embedded Seeds were you? being planted. Yeah. Uh, most
0: That's definitely. really interesting.
1: What about the role of play in your life and your freedom to s- explore? I mean, I, I know big cities can vary, particularly cities like Los Angeles. Did you ever have a sense that you were you the world
0: was your was yours to explore or did you were you protected and cosseted no i think I, particularly growing up in a large city parents have to embrace some semblance of autonomousness and mm-hmm. independence their children growing up as an only child and sort of one with an independent mindset there was definitely a part of me that had to be embraced i think growing up in in los angeles as well there was a lot of natural experiences that were around us mm-hmm. we ex- i experienced through the ocean quite a lot but then also again through sports and i think play was was always something encouraged but within part of a a larger context and, and scope of mm. varying experiences
1: that experience of being near the ocean and um, sounds like the fusion of Being in nature, yet being in a city, infused with the rigor and the hard work ethic of being involved with baseball, set you on a certain path. What about the influence of friends and other buddies or even mentors in your life at that
0: stage? Most definitely. I mean, I think when I look back on particularly my high school years, there's one a a couple of mentors and teachers in particular that highlighted for me the importance of knowledge and and particularly history. And I, I was always politically driven as a teenager. Where did, Felt, that come, where did that come from? I think it came from a, a, a sense of sensitivity to suffering of people around me. When I was young, my father had cancer. That sort of colored my whole childhood, my whole adolescence mm-hmm. uh, growing up. I think that sort of put me in tune with a certain level of empathy. I think also other instances as well. I mean, growing up in Jewish traditional, like going we didn't we weren't really religious. I grew up more with sort of meditation and incense than I did with Jewish symbolism or, or mm-hmm. Christian symbolism. Who's responsible for that? Your father or my mother? (laughs) Definitely my mother. My father was was Catholic, and I think they shared some sort of New Age sentimentalities, which in fact is I think where they met was at a a seminar, a sort of New Age, one of those nineteen seventies New Age seminars. Uh, They had very differing perspectives on what spirituality and religion were. Much more rigid and dogmatic on my father's side i would say
1: so who were these mentors or these um people that influenced you when you were at that
0: so i i spent a lot of my teenage years not really interested in school because i was not good at it it wasn't my just lack of interest yeah uh, i think so because as i got older it changed and evolved and once i found my way then and those were the were two people that i in particular helped kind of feel that i found my way one was my history teacher as a as a junior and senior year in in high school and that i was interested in social justice and we started nonprofits and did concerts and Mm kind of raised a a stink whenever we could about something we felt uh, was important but this teacher carol winter in in junior year of, of high school she showed me the historical context of a lot of the things that I was looking at, and the power that was in—I was reading Zen, uh and people's history, and an alternative side of a knowledge system that was not being widely expressed, mm-hmm. and and that was a powerful connection. I think because school felt so rigid and and. And I, it was a box that I didn't fit into, or at least not everything. But then I sort of found my way through that lens to be able to understand kind of the power that was in that. And then also at the same time, I had a, a librarian and mentor on the on the sort of social justice side who mm. F- like fostered our ability and our independence to like do an all-day fundraising concert at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go at 14 mm-hmm. for the ratification on the UN rights of the child. It was There was an interesting an interesting influence oh. that sort of shaped the perspective of the world. That's I think a pow- it gave me sort of a, unlocked a powerful door.
1: So that's interesting that these two parallel directions of social justice, but also... An interest in history, and particularly in terms of the the historical context of that point in time, could have taken down two different routes. You could have gone down the non profit route. You could have gone down the historical educational option and 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 path as well. But you didn't. You went down the route. And we're start jumping ahead slightly, but you you followed a sort of political science pathway.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I did a little bit of both. I had also I had uh, because of that love of social justice, nonprofit work was kind of just part of Mm -hmm. the, part of the thing. So whether it was doing stuff with the ocean or with other sort of causes in that way. And then I also, I think where I really started to find myself, my father passed away when I was 19. So Mm -hmm. up until that point, school sort of seemed secondary Mm -hmm. and important. And when I look back at graduating from high school, I, didn't apply for i applied for one college and didn't write an essay uh so i actively knew that i needed to sort of delay where i was and when i was in community college after he passed away i was i finally was able to kind of make it all congeal and i'd started working at kcrw an npr station Mm -hmm. in southern california and that was where I saw community, I think, for the first time, growing up in such a big city. I mean, I think I, I knew community in my baseball field, and I knew it in various different places, but there was a, a true sense of a larger connection to a, a social good as well. And that was a framework for me graduating from... from. I ended up transferring to UCLA and then finally and, then, and did a double track major with history and political science because... Then it all sort of came s- together. It all the, came the, the, the together. Perfect fusion. So I think from there, uh, my first job. I, I in college I had worked for Ariana Huffington was, had heard was just sort of like exposed to an interesting political mindset at the time, and graduated from college. I I've been fortunate that I was told by a diverse clan of folks around me Mm. uh not to go straight to into like to graduate and go straight into career so i spent a little bit of time traveling but i I did end up kind of on that nine to five yeah yeah got a good a good dose of it (laughs) is
1: there anything in your memory or any defining moment or memory from your childhood that was pivotal in the direction that you've
0: taken I mean, I think it would be finding out that my father had cancer and the moment when I left the hospital when he Mm. passed away. I think those were kind of, those were profound moments for me. And when I was 14, being taken on a trip to to Indonesia, that was an experience of connection to a wider world Mm. for the first time, seeing certain forms of poverty and, and giving, giving an, an understanding and appreciation of, of how fortunate. The privilege of being that 1%. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, smaller than 1%. Just being, yeah, being able to have clean air, fresh water, not be concerned about your safety, be healthy and happy. And I think those are things that people, people strive for universally.
1: So with those defining moments in your life, Actually I got to just ask one other question about you your your youth were you ambitious
0: Yeah I would say I would say so maybe when I think back to it I think back to sports and and wanting to be a leader and wanting to be captain of the team and and but not out of a sense of like position or rank it was wanting to be effective uh-huh. and wanting to feel that i had given my all i think now especially the the older i get the more i and the more in, in touch with a sense of like change that i would like to, to see the more the drive and motivation to try and figure those things out not that it doesn't get easier but mm-hmm. at least it, in terms of like the the motivation to want to create impact I, create impact mm-hmm. i think that's was finding this sort of sustainable fire that builds itself that mm. continuously a cup that refills itself okay um, right well i'm gonna put you on the spot now and say <laughs> that sounds great and
1: i could see you going from there and uh, and finding yourself running community farms and having your own farm in the catskills but you ended up doing law
0: where did it all go wrong <laughs> yeah well, I think I was on. I followed a track. I mean, I I, I also felt that I I had made a determined. It's fortunately I had spent a number of years traveling and had had gotten time and space. And I thought that given the circumstances, it, try. I didn't know what to do. It was mm-hmm. sort of a default option, and it, I felt that it would be effective in its ability to bring about change through mm-hmm. a legal standpoint. I mean, there's certainly a great deal of power to having a law degree. Yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, or her, or not necessarily a great deal of power, but it, it is an informative basis of knowledge mm-hmm. to be able to operate. No,
1: one of our earliest guests, Natalie Bridgman Fields, studied law, and she, she witnessed injustice when she was a traveling student in Chile, seeing communities being broken up by the police and tear gassed, and being challenged by the locals in Chile to say, "Natalie, this is your country doing this. You have to, you have to help us." And she then had a mission to go back and use her law to litigate for change. But realized that litigation takes time, so she set up her own NGO called Accountability Council. And now works independently to drive and accelerate change for underprivileged and underserved communities. But her law, as she said herself, her law served her well. It set her on that right track. So and I, think I can that, see your
0: point of view on that, that. That to me speaks strongly about the potential impact of law. Mm-hmm. And I think was a correlation to to the re- the impact, the reason that I saw that it could, could promote change and, and well, have I, an impact.
1: I think also when we come and talk about the work you've been doing with the community farm, particularly in, in Williamsburg with North Brooklyn Farm, I suspect it's it builds it gives you an immense sense of confidence knowing where you stand legally <laughs> and when someone threatens you with legal action you know exactly where the power lies so i think that must be a a valuable asset
0: yeah i think just in in general for 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 people to be protective of themselves it's a good thing a good thing to know i i think i was fortunate in that cuz it was right about the financial recession when i was I had been studying for about a year and a half, been living in New York. So you I finished. So just to for from timeline standpoint, you finished at UCLA doing your
1: political science degree, and then moved to New York.
0: Uh, so no, actually, there was a period, a gap in between there. So I graduated, and that summer, I got a job. I had traveled in, in throughout South America, uh, and then I ended up working at. At getting a job at UCLA, uh, which I was very fortunate to have and uh, working in the administration. And it was as an assistant to the the chair and vice chair and past chair and chief administrative officer of the academic Senate, the body that represents the faculty in the university. And it was it was sort of a legal track work to that. But ultimately, I just was not happy in an office in a cubicle behind a computer, even no matter what the kind of effect of change was, it just, the workload became the nine to five lifestyle did not feel resonant with what a human being should (laughs) be doing. (laughs) And ultimately what really happened was Barack Obama got elected. I had kind of volunteered in Nevada and, and, and tried to, to be part of the campaign and felt compelled by what he was doing and his message and I was going to go to the inauguration. Mm-hmm. I, it was a moment in history and I wasn't going to miss it. And I didn't have vacation time. And I told my boss, like, look, I have to go to this. And he said, you can't. You don't have vacation time. So I said, thank you for helping yeah. push me in the right. To, like, you know, I'm going. Actually, there was in a serendipitous way. There was uh, I had gone over to my mother's house. I was trying. I was trying to figure out what to do. I wanted to just stay on at my job, but I also felt something else beckoning and uh, was debating at the end of January, going to to DC and then traveling in South America. And I was at dinner at my mom's house and her cousin was there. And she said, Oh, like you want to go, you're going to go to Rio. My aunt lives in Rio. She has an apartment right near Copacabana beach. Like go stay with her. And, that sort of sealed the deal. It was like, right. okay, that's what we're doing. Like, that. So I spent a year almost traveling throughout South America. And then eventually I was teaching English in Korea. I ran out of money and English teaching jobs were a thing. Like the girl that I was in the relationship with at the time, we got our TEFL certificates and spent a year teaching in in Korea and then I came back we broke up and I was trying to figure out the place to go and New York in also a serendipitous way one of my sort of older sister types had reached out to me and I kind of it ended up pulling me in that direction I had an offer to a potential work at a job at a law firm they were doing civil rights sexual harassment type cases high profile cases and it was okay mm-hmm. let's give new york a try i'm studied for the lsat i'm gonna go i'm gonna go to law school and and right about that time it was like after about a year in new york the financial crisis was happening things weren't looking good for the job mm-hmm. market and i recognized that i would have hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and would not be able to take the type of you know social activist type of job and be able to exist in new york city or like anywhere really once you have that kind of debt which is sort of a plague of our generation at this at this point i would say unless Bernie gets in and then yeah reverses that <laughs> we'll see there's so many so many obstacles i think but
1: but yeah so you're new york upward so from from so making then, this decision around the 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 potential downsides of the debt where did it pivot to your interest in
0: urban and community farming? So right before I had left for New York, I mean, as I had said, growing up when I was a teenager, I started just growing cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers and whatever I could on our small little patio in Venice. And that sort of, evolved over time and and finally i after two years on the waiting list i ended up with a community garden space Mm -hmm. Uh, so that i found personal peace and solace in gardening and i took that with me to new york so when i was working at the law firm i would spend i finally i was fortunate enough to find a space at the automotive automotive high school garden uh, across from mccarran park Mm -hmm. Uh, that was in my neighborhood in, in on the Brooklyn, border of yeah. Greenpoint and Williamsburg in Brooklyn. And that place was my solid... It was the sort of light to my dark. And it just it, kept you sane through those
1: 9 to 5, the drudgery of um, training to be a lawyer.
0: Yeah, yeah, just like spending time collating papers. And ultimately, there was like the the breaking point was on a July day. And it was in the like 80s. It was beautiful the office was like near the uh, city hall Mm -hmm. and it was like a beautiful day. And I was inside, I'd like gone out to have lunch and sit in the park and I come back into the office and have a sweater on and the amount of like waste and electricity and paper and staggering Mm -hmm. on a multiplied basis across New York city, Mm -hmm. just like growing up as a Californian, we were kind of imbued with certain (laughs) kind of, environmental dogma that it was kind of staggering like this is is very different even than my like california office experience Mm -hmm. but that that was kind of the day that did it but i think the thing that really did was like i saw my bosses and they weren't happy they didn't Mm -hmm. seem happy with their lives like they were successful they should if that was what they wanted to in terms of doing. career
1: progression of course success but yeah life's expensive. and
0: f- like you know externally from a fan like family point of view like everything you know you have the home you have the family you have the thing the career but like not the time or the presence to be with your children or to be able to and granted i see like a, it's probably a skewed uh, segment of that but mm-hmm. that was enough for me to like okay, maybe there's something different I should be doing. Uh, and there was a book called The $100 Startup, Chris Gillibo. And that, and and my girlfriend at the time, it was like this concept of how do you do what you love and make money out of it? And so what I thought, what do I love doing? And it was like, I love growing vegetables because it uh-huh. makes me happy. Yeah. And I think on my dad's side of the family, everybody had a trade, a skill my dad could, like take an engine apart and put it back together. My f- uncle was a pilot. The other one was a fisherman, and all all hands on deck. Whatever he could do, anything. And I never, as a like sort of intellectual, political activist type, never had a chip on my shoulder. So being a farmer fit into my family dynamic quite well. And also, like as I got older and found out that there, my grandfather had had a small farm like- in like the six it would have been like 60s 70s oh, right. okay. just south of massachusetts south of boston all oh, right and that actually was that for me as well at that time i had my uncle was very influential for me and gave me the first place to grow in the ground and have like here's this space like go do it and he he was the first to recognize he was like you want to be a farmer that's what you want to do Hmm. and it's funny because in terms of lessons learned and lessons i think that i take away from the whole experience of north brooklyn farms has been i remember being in massachusetts with my uncle visiting him when i was working at the law firm and being like hey you know there's this crazy request for proposals that i found and it's this empty lot and we could turn it into this farm and the developers, like, he was all... You were still at the law firm at this point. I was still at the law firm. Mm-hmm. And now I would go... I had, like, a field of squat, butternut squash, and Roma tomatoes growing up there in the in Massachusetts. The town is situate where my family grew up. And uh, my uncle was a caretaker of this property. And I had the community garden, and then I had this other... I'd take the mega bus back with, like, wow. a box full of tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> sort of silly, but he recognized... That, that's more so than I did that that was what I wanted to do and he encouraged me to just we used to just bounce crazy ideas off each other all the time that was that was a he was a very influential voice in in, in my head at the because um, what was this uh 2012 2013 yeah it was 2012 cause we, because we 2013 in in the winter at that time it would have been the, summer 2012.
1: I'm trying to think who the mayor was at the time was it still
0: Bloomberg. I think it was still Bloomberg. It was, it was yeah. before
1: De Blasio. Yeah, it wasn't exactly um a city that you would look to to having a thriving
0: community farm. Uh, it was a thing at the time. The uh, it was with Brooklyn Grange starting. I mean, it, it's New York City has a such a such a thriving community garden culture, mm. and I think that sort of this self sufficient, self sustainable, but also just like tough, like I'm gonna kind of do this on my own and and also the history of of vacant lots mm-hmm. um and, and that's a really powerful sort of transition What's point the history of vacant lots well so i mean sort of you think about new york city before its current iteration mm-hmm. like yeah. sort of before like 70s 80s yeah, yeah I, I mean it was gnarly i mean it was uh, growing up as a kid in the 90s my conceptualization of new york city was like it was a scary place and like getting mugged was a regular occurrence and so in the in the economic crisis of new york city with burned down lots and you would have once in a city if there is i think for long enough you have a piece of land that it sits vacant it ends up attracting something that you don't necessarily want it to 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 be part of your community and part of your neighborhood and part of taking back control was this process of of communities reclaiming empty lots uh that for me is super powerful and was a precedent we looked at i mean that was when i quit my job at the law firm i started getting involved more i I worked one thing that was really fortunate is that i had asked my boss the law firm about getting involved in community politics in new york or like about getting involved with my neighborhood because someone said something to me that was impactful in thinking about gentrification and being a white male in my 30s i it was important to me to think about my place and my role in the city and to to be a sole impact on what that is and someone had said to me or read somewhere if you're gonna be part of gentrifying a neighborhood which had some semblance of inevitability just based upon the place where we were at do something to make it better and so I wanted to try and at Greenpoint also has a history of like activism and social mm-hmm. community driven, like very, very vocal residents. Mm-hmm. And I ended up working uh, for a, a local nonprofit, the Greenpoint Water- Guap, the Greenpoint Waterfront Association for Parks and Planning, who had... It was it was initially Greenpoint Williamsburg against the power plant. They had stopped Con Edison from building a power plant in the neighborhood because
1: there had been pollution and oil spills in the the way back in Greenpoint. Yeah, Greenpoint <laughs> is. For the ground
0: zero of like industrial revolution pollution, for going back century, like uh, back to the 1800s, and as the industrialization of New York happened, the Newtown Creek is sort of like.
1: There's people that don't know Greenpoint that might have been to New York. It sits across the East River, just to the north of Williamsburg, which is the known to many people as a sort of hipster, at one point the hipster area of New York, now gentrified. And Greenpoint is buffers Williamsburg, and then crossing on to Long Island City.
0: Yeah, exactly. So Greenpoint would be is the most northern neighborhood of Brooklyn that separates Queens from Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and that proximity, and then it is also directly close to Ma- Manhattan. So that proximity to both uh, to three boroughs, and also the history of industry along the Newtown mm-hmm. Creek and waterways as transportation at the time served as a uh, kind of concentration of industrialization. Mm -hmm. And then particularly there's a, an oil processing facility that had what's behind Exxon Valdez is the largest, longest oil spill on record was 20, 30 years, something like that. Incredible. Yeah. And can sort of add to that. The other sort of environmental things that have happened there and the fact that like most trash gets transported through Greenpoint and there's so the, uh, it'll it'll which, create a citizenry speaks. that's yeah. kind yeah. of like a little bit outraged yeah <laughs> Quite right. and I think uh, also because this results in higher like incidents of cancer and and other profound health impacts that are disproportionately kind of Set upon a, a particular neighborhood based on historical mm-hmm. uh, kind of preference. Yes.
1: So you got involved in that action group, and then what led? So at this point, you were doing this with permission of your law firm.
0: Yeah, As this total, was sort of like, like a, a side. This photo. was like my no. Well, this was sort of just like a side project okay, right. um, that I was just doing in my neighborhood. My girlfriend and I at the time ran the website, and we they had gotten a grant to do a community blog. And so we were running the website and kind of running social media for them and sort of like the, the young, young side uh, of, of, the, of, community of the community activists. Yeah. yeah. So, and
1: so how did that evolve from there to finding out about the RFP for this community farm? That, so, or was it a community? It was an RFP for what? There's a
0: vacant space. So the, the, the what happened was we so it was about september i quit my job september 2012 and i started decided that i was going to go into urban farming and made the phone call to so my you made mom decision
1: and this is the hundred dollar startup this was the yeah start, exactly it start was farming a farm hundred dollars it was Good like let's
0: you. let's i like i called my mom was like i'm not going to law school i'm not going to take the lsat mm-hmm. i'm quitting my job and i'm gonna like go into urban farming i think it's the right thing to do and that she was, must
1: have had a fairly colorful reaction to that.
0: Yeah, it was uh, hesitation and doubt. I was sort of, uh, I was like, "I'll be okay. Like, I'm not gonna end up homeless." And she, ah, like, "Okay, no, no, no. Like, I'm, sm- I'm doing this for a reason." And she's still in LA. Yeah, she's yeah, still, yeah. she's still in LA, <laughs> but she comes out here every once in a while. So, so we sort of, like, I, I, from that at that point, I started working at at the battery urban farm and i was an education apprentice there so working with the school visits and then i had gotten accepted into the brooklyn urban gardener program at the the brooklyn botanic garden that was a extremely formative experience for me and very fortunate another serendipitous mm. fortunate turn of events
1: because if you hadn't done that you wouldn't have had the skills to win the rfp
0: yeah i skills. think it was uh it was just sort of like this collective accumulation of disparate knowledge bases that all of a sudden had meaning and singularity of purpose yes. once the sort of farm concepts came together
1: so this request for proposal who was it from
0: so what had happened was uh, i was working with guap and running the website and the domino project was a major the dominant the purchase of the domino factory and sugar the, factory the domino yeah. sugar factory in brooklyn mm-hmm. so it was it's an enormously historic piece of property that was served as the number one producer of like the majority of sugar through the continental United States. And the historic importance of sugar in the United States, our economy and, and the social implications that go along with it, are vast and 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 diverse so it was like an important it was and it employed the neighborhood i mean it was a huge it was a huge fixture and it was the largest building sort of back in the day on the waterfront It was an imposing yeah. structure an of industry structure yeah. it's a beautiful beautiful building and so the purchase of it and the development of that space was of high importance to the community Mm -hmm. people were interested and engaged with what was going to happen and initially there was a movement to try and stop the save domino and Mm -hmm. and to turn it into someone to buy it as like an art complex this was already sort of at the after the point had already been purchased Mm -hmm. and because of that sort of like community focus i've found the request for proposals had con- gone out from Two Trees, the developer who had purchased, purchased the property. And it was a 50,000 square foot lot that had sat vacant for a decade. It was the former parking lot of the factory and it was in Williamsburg next to the bridge right close to the waterfront and it had a lot of potential. It was a beautiful, beautiful big open lot. And that was a, that was a pastime of both mine and Henry's, like to sort of walk around. Who, who's Henry? Uh, Henry was my partner at Northbrook and Farms, who I had met at the Battery Urban Farm. He was oh. the farm manage there, manager there at the time, and we ended up. We both sort of had each had had this idea of of what a farm in the city could be that was different than anything that we had seen previously most of the farms were either like agricultural focused or education focused and they weren't really about community and th- not to say that there wasn't a community there all of those farms have community have very strong community cultures but it wasn't about uh, open public embracing of of people and of the farm as a fixture as part of the social fabric of a community mm-hmm. destination a destination in and of itself, and also of, of a respite, of, a, of mm-hmm. a natural oasis in a crazy, chaotic city. Indeed, <laughs> <laughs> um, an
1: understatement. Yeah. So that encounter with meeting Henry must have been also another serendipitous step in on the direction to actually submitting that that RFP. What happened when you submitted the RFP? Well, there must be other Williamsburg hipster entrepreneurs with grand ideas. Wanting to do something <laughs> fifty thousand square feet, other than a community farm.
0: So that uh, absolutely, there was a there was a lot of a lot of people that put put proposals in, and that we sort of found out more and more after, as the process unfolded. Actually, and originally, we weren't even selected. We were so as part of this sort of serendipitous turn of events, we. Henry and I, when we kind of went together to put together a proposal, it was just the two of us. We didn't have an organization. We didn't have a business. We didn't have like liability insurance or any of the sort of things that we just had like this idea and a determination to try and bring it about. And through like serendipitous circumstances, somebody through a friend of a friend at a was at a birthday party. And this guy was also putting in a proposal for the same lot to build so, something sort of like more of a party venue. Mm-hmm. And they had had a church in in Bushwick where they had held events and, and things like that. And we ended up submitting our proposal as like a sub-licensee of Bobby Red, mm-hmm. the, the, the organization that submitted the primary proposal. We were sort of the agricultural component. And so we were... We kind of were like, we rode in on the coattails, essentially, was how we ended up getting in on the request for proposal. And then there was also, uh, so there were th- like, it was essentially like there were three projects that were chosen. There was Bobby Red and then North Brooklyn Farms as part of the agricultural and then the Brooklyn Bike Park, which we we became neighbors all sharing the same space and, and figured we didn't, no one knew what they were doing. No, mm-hmm. we, this was, was all new there was no paradigm for us to to follow it was a public it was a public park space event space in a community but like privately owned and privately run by three separate different groups and like doing different things and with no funding so there was that we uh, we and we were young. We you were, were
1: thrown in the deep end and said, "Right, you've been <laughs> seven years, very much,
0: very much so." Oh, uh, and we we were we had a year to mm-hmm. get the the request for proposals was for a year. Oh, that's all. Um, so we and people thought we were crazy. They were like, "What are you building a farm for for a year? Like that doesn't make any mm-hmm. sense." <laughs> we always knew it was sort of like if this works, it works, and it's not going to be a year. If we, if it does what we think that it should. And it took a while. <laughs> it took a few years of, till we moved across the street. We, we didn't know if people understood what we what our intention was with 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 the space that so we were trying. to be trying clear, to you create. had the
1: first year you established the, the space, and then two trees made so you know, move across the road because to the waterfront
0: because of the the sort of bureaucratic nightmare of trying to get trying to fit this like round peg into a square hole like there's no the Department of buildings had no way of evaluating what we were and for Bobby red and that like the head of that organization he went straight into a wall of like New York City bureaucracy that just couldn't fit couldn't like just say yes this is okay it's like an outside event space Mm -hmm. without making it overly complicated and i think the combination of that and like construction no funding and things that they ended up by the by the end of the first year they ended up kind of falling off because things were it was it was difficult i mean with this we all had the
1: bureaucracy it wasn't too much effort
0: and just endless amounts of money that nobody had and stress and time and it was all new we didn't we were and like I had I was working at the I had gotten a job at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and I remember during the like interview they're like what are you gonna do if you get the domino project I was like that's not gonna I remember like literally in my head thinking like that's not gonna I probably was part of my answer was like it's very unlikely that I'm gonna that's gonna happen like it seemed so implausible to like have a billionaire developer give you a multi-million piece of property like here you go just start growing do something good with it and that was it was mission driven we were compelled by doing something good for our community and for for being like we were so lucky we got given like the chance of a lifetime that like most people never get okay that's the
1: end of part one come back tomorrow for part two when ryan and i discuss his experience of running north brooklyn farms for seven years and the impact it had on local community in brooklyn and beyond if you like the show please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us just go to itunes spotify or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina Michele and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.